Well, hello, friends. You're listening to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris, the Communications Director at Cap City, and I'm so glad that you're listening. In fact, I would love to chat with you. Send me an email at hello at capitalcitychristian.org. We're continuing with this series where we're going through the book of Jonah. It's a small book in the Bible about a prophet named Jonah and his interactions with God. But it's more than that. It's about a story for people like us. We're in week five of the series, and today we're looking at Jonah's interactions with the sailors who were in a boat with him during a massive storm. We're looking at how he embraced, or didn't embrace, those who were different than him. Our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison, has the message ready, so let's get started. Let's pray together. Father, I hope that you make us aware of your presence. It's an amazing thing to be here in your presence by your invite. It's an incredible thing to be here in the midst of people that each of us in our own way are messy. But wanting to honor you, give you the praise that you deserve. And I pray that in some fashion we will be open to the nudges of your spirit, whatever they might be this morning. Some here need your encouragement. Some here need uh, some prodding. And I just pray that whatever we need, we'll sense that and we will be receptive. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Glad you're here. Some pretty cool stuff we've already gone through, right? I mean, when faith sings like that, I don't have to preach, but I'm going to anyway. So I'm going to jump right into the middle of a story. Boat is ready to be torn apart by this storm. For some reason, the guys who are on the boat, these sailors, figure out that the storm must have been sent by some god. A little strange to us, but something they might have figured out back then. Some god is mad at somebody. So they cast some lots to try to figure out who god might be mad at. And there's this guy, Jonah, a prophet of God. He's outed by their lots. Storm's his fault. I suppose his God must be mad at him, they figure. So they start firing at Jonah. What'd you do? Who the heck are you? Of course, they're sailors, so I doubt if they use the word heck, right? I mean, they're coming after this guy. What do you do? Where are you from? What color are you? They ask, which may seem a little strange to us at first. And here's how Jonah responds. And what he says is half right. Actually, the first half of it is right. It's the second half that is a bit delusional, I think. He says, I'm a Hebrew. That's correct. And I worship the Lord, the God, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And my response to this is, liar? Maybe it's not a lie. Maybe he's just delusional. I suppose that in his own way, I mean, Jonah would say that he worships God, the creator. But I think it's a stretch for Jonah to call him Lord, don't you? Now, I suppose that a person can call God, God, and then blow God off. I mean, we do that on occasion. We do that a lot, in fact. I suppose I can use the word Lord. Jesus is Lord, my Savior and my Lord without actually letting him be my Lord. We tend to do that. 
And I think that's what Jonah was doing. I mean, he's on this boat. You know why he's on this boat? He's trying to not obey his God, his Lord. Lord wants him to do one thing. He's doing exactly the opposite. God, I'm going to be... I'm going to be my own boss. I mean, I will go where you want me to go, and I will do what you want me to do as long as I agree with where you want me to go and what you want me to do, right? So this storm hits his boat. Boat's coming apart. Jonah's sleeping, which essentially means he's letting all the rest of the guys who are in danger because of him go to hell for all he cares. And when they ask him who he is, he says, I am a Hebrew. (laughs) And then he says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. Really? He's either lying to himself or he's lying to them, which I suppose we do a lot. Now, did you know that you can sincerely believe that there is a God? And you can sincerely believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you can believe that Jesus actually did die for your sins. And you can believe that God the Father actually raised Jesus from the dead. We can actually believe all of that stuff sincerely without ever letting him be our Lord right? The one I live for, the one who gives me meaning and purpose, the one I would die for, the one that I am going to be willing to give first place in everything, which I think explains why so often we Jesus followers can be jerks. We can. Why is it that so many Jesus followers are racists or greedy, self-absorbed materialists? Why are so many Jesus followers addicted to something other than God? Addicts, addicted to beauty, addicted to pleasure, whatever. Whatever else is not really God with a big G. It's because sometimes we believe that he exists. We believe that we probably need his help sometimes. We believe that we'll probably someday need his help a whole lot. We do want God to be a part of who we are. We're just not quite willing to give him the center of who we are. There are things more important to us for now. Some person, maybe. Someone's approval, maybe. Money, maybe. Pleasure, maybe. Everyone everyone has a God, don't they? Now, who's yours? What if someone just watches you? They don't listen to you. They just watch you. And you can't filter what they see. You can't filter what they hear, Right? And they don't care so much about what you say. They just watch what you do. They watch what you wear. They watch what you hang with. They watch how you spend your money. They watch how you spend your free time. They watch what you do on the job. They watch how you treat people in your life. And they see everything about you unfiltered, right? Who would they call your God? What would they say is your God? And would they think that there might be a disconnect between what you say and what you actually are, like Jonah. That's what we're going to talk about today, right? So I'm going to catch you up a little bit. If you've just jumped into this series, we've been talking about Jonah for several weeks now, and I'm going to kind of go back. It's one of the most controversial stories in all of the Bible, Jonah and the whale. So the story opens like this. Here it goes. One day the Lord spoke to Jonah, the son of Amittai. God said, go to Nineveh, great city, speak out against it, because I'm aware of how wicked its people are. And they were terrible. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But Jonah set out in the opposite direction in order to get away from the Lord, right? 
Good luck with that, by the way. He went to Joppa, which is a seaport on the coast of Israel. He found a ship about to go to Spain the other direction. He paid his fare, went aboard with the crew, set sail to Spain, where he would be away from the Lord. That's the story to that point. But the Lord sends this strong wind on the sea, and the storm was so violent, the ship was in danger of breaking up. So as you might guess, the sailors are terrified, and they cry out for help, each one of them to their own God. And in order to lessen the danger, they start throwing the cargo overboard. Meanwhile, Jonah was down below in the ship's hold, sound asleep, because we discover he's a world-class jerk. Captain finds him there and says to him, what are you doing asleep? Get up. Pray to your God for help. Maybe he'll feel sorry for us and spare our lives. And now we're closing in on the scene that I'm going to focus on this morning. Verse 7 is closer. The sailors said to each other, let's draw lots. Let's find out who's to blame for getting us into this danger because that's the kind of stuff they did back then, right? So they did so. They drew lots. Jonah's name was drawn. And then they start firing these questions at Jonah, right? Tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. Is it you? Is it your God? What kind of work do you do? Why is your God so mad at you? Where do you come from? Where's your country? From what people are you? Essentially, they're asking this question, who is your God? I've been telling you that we're drawing a lot of the ideas from this series from a great little book by a guy named Tim Keller called The Prodigal Prophet or The Prodigal uh, yeah, Prodigal Prophet. We have connections, uh, copies in our connections room, and if you want to go get a copy, you can follow along. Keller says that basically they're asking three kinds of questions. Number one, what is your mission? What's your purpose? What are you all about? Number two, where do you come from? Where do you live? Where's your home? Number three, more specifically, who are your people? What kind of people are you? What's your tribe? But in reality, all of these questions are trying to ask the bigger question, the most important one, who's your God? Some God is really, really mad at you. Who is he? Because here's the deal. Back then, they pretty much figured that if they could answer all the rest of those questions, they could discover who his God is. What's your mission? Where are you from? Where's your home? What are your people? What tribe do you belong to? If I can figure out those things, I know your God. I know what you worship, they believed. Because back then... Every place, every race, every profession had their own God. Kind of a primitive idea to us, we think. But maybe they understood something that sometimes we forget. Who you are and what you worship are flip sides of the same coin. Who you are reveals who you worship. Who you worship shapes who you are. Now, the world was very different back then because back then everybody believed in a boatload of gods, right? Baal, Ashtaroth, Chemosh, Dagon, Ra, Isis, Osiris, Marduk, Molech. Some of them believed in whole pantheons of the gods. You've heard of some of these guys, right? Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Artemis, Apollo, Ares, Athena, Aphrodite, Hermes. And back then, most people thought that these gods were attached to a place and they were attached to a profession. Sometimes they attach to a different people, to a different tribe. We're smarter than that, right? We don't buy all the nonsense of all these gods. 
We don't believe in a God of commerce by the name of Mercury. But I doubt that anybody in this room would question that some people treat money as a God, right? No one would doubt that there are people, maybe in this room and certainly in our world, who'd sacrifice their family, their friends, and their faith for money. We've seen it happen. We see it every day. In our world, we don't believe in a goddess of beauty that is called Venus. But you've seen people who are absolutely, absolutely obsessed over how they look and who judge other people by how they look, right? Way more obsessed with their bodies than they are their creator. We don't believe in a Bacchus, the god of wine, and Aphrodite, the goddess of sensual love. I don't think anybody in this room is going to push back if I suggest that there are a lot of people who value wine or sex more than they value their families, their jobs, or their Jesus, right? See, every one of us has someone we say we worship. And every single one of us has someone or something that we actually do worship. And here's the deal. Whatever else we put in God's place, the real God's place, is always going to be a pale substitute. Either your little G God is going to fail you or you're going to fail it. Money's your God, you're not going to have enough. If beauty is your God, someday it's going to fail. You want proof? Right? I was pretty once. That's a lie. But If some person is your God, you're going to fail them or they're going to fail you. And then stupidly we get it mad at the real God for messing with our fake God. Well, here it is. I mean, everybody worships some God. There is something or there is some person that you live for that is more important to you than anything else or anyone else. There is something or some person who controls you that you trust most. Back then they knew that. Something, some person who gives you significance, whose acceptance you would do, do nearly anything for. Sometimes, not always, sometimes who we say we worship and who we actually worship are two different things. Now, here's where I'm going to be a little speculative. I'm going to kind of break from what's pretty obvious in the story and make a couple of guesses. A lot of guys make these same guesses. Does the order matter? Does the order in which Jonah puts his answer does the order matter, whether consciously or subconsciously? I mean, it kind of looks like it might, right? It looks like the first thing he says, I'm a Hebrew. It looks like because he says that first, it looks to me like that's what's most important to him. And then second in order, and maybe in importance, is this, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the heavens and the earth, right? But it kind of makes it look to me like when he says... I'm a Hebrew first, it makes this kind of delusional. Kind of like me saying something like this. I am an American, and I'm a Christian, because the two usually go together, right? I am a 65-year-old white male, and I'm a Christian. And already you put me in some kind of a box. Or I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, and I'm a Christian. Because bottom line, you see it every day where people think that political boundaries are way bigger than religious ones. 
I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a papa, and I'm a Christian, or even I'm a pastor, and I'm a Christian. Because for a lot of us pastors, working for God is way more comfortable than being with God. I'm a businessman. I'm a crossfitter. You guys don't believe that, do you? I'm retired. I'm a lover. I'm whatever. And I'm a Christian. As if Christian can come second. But it looks to me like Jonah's race, his tribe, and his people were more important to Jonah than his God. I'm serious. Look at the evidence. I think the evidence is overwhelming. The real God, the big G God, says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, the enemy of Israel, and preach. And Jonah says, I will not. I'm a Jew. I'm a Hebrew. We Jews hate those guys, and they hate us. They don't deserve your grace, God. They deserve hell. Being a Jew is more important to me at this moment than being your servant, God. So I'm going to go the opposite direction. So he's in this boat because he hated the Assyrians, and his hatred for them is bigger than his love for God. So God sends this storm that not only threatens his life, but also everybody else on the boat, right, who are relatively innocent. It's not their fault the storm is there. God cares for these guys. Jonah doesn't. They're the kind of guys he's supposed to nudge towards God. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. Being a Jew is more important to him than serving his God, right? So... Maybe we can begin to understand this, this cantankerous, belligerent prophet of God. And maybe it helps us understand ourselves when we are cantankerous, belligerent children of God, which we can be. We can be a whole lot like Jonah, which is why we're calling this series Like Me, because in so many ways, he's like us and we're like him. You see, I can sincerely believe that there really is a God. I can sincerely believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died for my sins and God the Father raised him from the dead. I can believe in that stuff. I can call him my Savior, but not treat him as my Lord, right? I can know that he is God, kind of with a little g, without actually letting him be my God with a big g. You know, the one we live for, the one we die for, the one we follow when we don't understand him, as well as when we do, the one that we follow when we agree with him and even when we don't, the one who gets first place in everything because somebody has to have a God, right? Well, I think it explains why so many Christians are jerks. Why is it that so many Jesus followers are racists, greedy, self-absorbed materialists, why are so many of us Jesus followers addicted to something other than our God? Whether it's beauty, pleasure, whatever. Because sometimes we believe there really is a God who exists and we think that perhaps we need his help sometimes and someday we're going to need his help a whole lot. And we do want him to be a part of who we are, but we don't want him to be the center of who we are. God doesn't accept second place. Now, we're almost there, but I've got one more part, and I've got to leave the Jonah story to get to that part, because Jonah's part of the old covenant, right? And we're part of the new covenant. 
And there are things we know about God that Jonah didn't. You know why? Because of Jesus. He's right there in between. So I want to skip over and talk about somebody who's a lot like Jonah, but who teaches us a lesson that we need to hear. So there was a time that a guy named Peter was a lot like Jonah, pretty full of himself as a Jesus follower. And there's this scene when Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Gethsemane, and that's where Judas is going to betray Jesus, right? Jesus knows it's coming. And so Jesus tells his disciples, here's what he says. He says, tonight all of you guys are going to desert me. All of you guys, all of you guys are going to desert me tonight. And Peter's like, you're flat out wrong, Jesus. These twits might desert you, but I'm never going to. I am braver than that. My devotion to you is unflappable, says Peter. And Jesus answers with this. He says, bless your little heart. You know what that means in, south, in Southern? It means you're so stupid. <laughs> Bless your little heart, Peter. Before this night is over, you're going to betray me three times. And instead of backing down, Peter gets stupider. He says, these twits might betray you. I never will, ever, ever, to the death. <laughs> and you know what happens next, right? Even if you don't know what happens next, you can guess. Now, what if your relationship with God is all about you? What if your relationship with God is all about your faithfulness, your purity? How much do you love him? How faithful have you been? What are you willing to do for him? How faithful have you been with this church? Do you read the Bible every day? Do you pray every day? How much money have you given? What efforts have you made at cleaning up your act that you know are contrary to our God? What happens when you fail? What happens when you fall? Because all of us do, right? Failure broke Peter. He couldn't look into Jesus' eyes anymore. He was embarrassed to be in Jesus' presence. And he's just beating himself. I just quit on God. If I quit on God, does that mean God is going to quit on me? Does my status as a child of God rise and fall on my faithfulness, my devotion, my work, my character? We think so which is why our relationship with God is so tenuous, so fragile, so small. (laughs) And Jesus says something that dazzles us. It really does if you think about what it means. I mean, the women went to the tomb where Jesus had been buried and they were expecting to find Jesus' corpse, right? When they got there, the huge stone that had sealed the entrance had been rolled aside and inside the tomb, instead of finding his corpse, they found an angel. Angel says, don't be scared. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He's not here. He's risen. Look, he was lying right here. But now, go tell his disciples, go tell his disciples, including Peter, 
Tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. Now think about it, guys. He could have said, go tell the disciples that Jesus is going into Galilee, and Peter should have gotten the message, right? He's one of the disciples. Why did he single him out? Why did he call him by name? This disciple who had promised never to fail him and then had failed him and felt eternally separated from God because of his failure. Jesus is saying, I still love you, guy. My cross covers your betrayals too. My cross covers your unfaithfulness too. Peter got it. And within weeks, he's on the street corners of Jerusalem where they had just killed his Jesus, and he's preaching in Jesus' name, saying, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we will be saved. See, it's not anchored in my purity. It's not anchored in my passion for God. It's anchored in his purity and the passion of his love for me. It's not anchored in your faithfulness It's not anchored in your purity. It's anchored in his love for you, and that cannot be broken. Kind of works this way with every other wannabe God. If you base your worth on what you achieve, your self-worth is fragile. If you base your self-worth on money, what happens when the market crashes? Had a hard week, haven't you? Some disaster strikes and you lose everything. If you base your self-worth on your career, what happens when your company downsizes? You ever been there? Got that pink slip? What happens if you just mess up and you lose your job? If you base your self-worth on your body, what happens when your body breaks? Or what happens when you get old, right? What happens then? If you base your self-worth on the approval of your family or the approval of your friends or your heroes, what happens when they're jerks and they reject you? What happens if you're a jerk and you push them away? I'll tell you what happens. You either live in a state of denial or your failures shatter you. And guys, it works the same for us as Jesus' followers. If you think your life with God is based on your faithfulness to him, what happens when you are unfaithful? We call it sin. We're good at it. If you think your relationship with God is based on your, on your passion for him, what happens when your passion fades for a time? Because, guys, passions fade. Come back. They fade. They're fickle. If your relationship with God, your life with God is measured by how much you have served or how much you have given or how much you've endured as a Jesus follower, well, what happens when you can't serve the way you used to? You can't give as much as you used to or you face questions or problems that you can't resolve or answer. That's coming. Chances are you either live in a state of denial or you fail, you're shatterous shouldn't because guys our identity is Jesus followers who I am as a Jesus follower you are as a Jesus follower your worth your value is not something you achieve something he gives you something you receive 
That's so important, guys. I don't know if you can get this. Our identity and our worth as Jesus followers are not things we achieve. They're things that we receive. My identity as a Jesus follower is not rooted in my devotion to Jesus. It's rooted in his good love for me. Yours too. (laughs) Now, it's been absolute weeks since I have quoted from C.S. Lewis, right? So I'm going to give you a C.S. Lewis quote. Here it is, Chronicles of Narnia. One of the characters is asked, do you know Aslan? And he responds, well, he knows me. That's infinitely more important. Apostle Paul put it like this. You remember one, at one time Paul was absolutely full of himself. In his, in his own mind, he was the perfect God follower. He was the creme de la creme, right? He was the cream of the crop, best of the best. And here's what he says. I once thought that was valuable. It's worthless because of what Christ has done for me. It's not about what I do. It's about what Christ has done, right? It still works that way. So to the Galatian Christians, Paul says, so now that you know God, right? Now that you know God, but now that God knows you, because that's infinitely bigger, foundation of our life with God is not that we love God because our love for God will always be fickle, fragile, and imperfect. The foundation of our life with God is his love for us which is completely undeserved and absolutely perfect, right? Man, that's strong. Which means, guys, I am not a 65-year-old American a white male libertarian, a husband, a dad, a papa, a pastor who happens to be a Jesus follower. I am a man who's been graced by God who happens to be a 65-year-old American, a white male libertarian, a dad, a papa, and a pastor. There's a difference between those two. You know what it means? Thank God my failures don't change who I am. Even in the midst of them, I'm a man who's been graced by my God a lot. And after I taste that grace again, I pick myself up and follow the one who I know always loves me perfectly. It means that even though I know, and I do, that I'm an underachiever as a Jesus follower, my God is never going to quit on me and he's never going to quit on you. Never, ever cool is that? If you could only get that here instead of just have an inkling of that here. You know what else that means? This is so big. It means that I don't have to look at people, the people that God brings into my life as Americans or not, as white or not, as libertarians or not. It means I don't have to evaluate people that God brings into my life as successful or not, beautiful or not. That I actually have the ability to see people as unconditionally loved by my God like he unconditionally loves me. Infinitely valuable to my God because for some reason I am too. People that he wants to do life with so badly, all of them, that he'd send his own son to die for them, all of them. 
which means the church really can be a place where there is no Jew and no Greek, no male and no female, where all of us are one in Christ Jesus. Changes everything. Changes everything about how we see ourselves. It changes everything about how we look at each other. Isn't that cool? Is he the center of your life? Do you give him the first place that he deserves? Would it be worth it? There's some words that Jesus said one time that are kind of haunting to me. They've always haunted me for a long, long time. As Jesus said something like this, he said, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Because there's a difference between saying Lord, Lord and making him Lord, Lord, right? They can just be words. He wants to be our Savior and our Lord. And if we accept him as our Savior and make him our Lord, your status in God is so amazingly strong. And life becomes rich. It's the way we were meant to live. We were meant to do life with God, for God, God's way. And now in a minute or two, I'm going to pray, and after that prayer, we're going to sing a song. And It's one of the things we say a lot, guys. I mean, church is not about coming and learning something about God and walking out there and being more knowledgeable about God. Church is about having an experience with God. He's in the room. I hope that you felt his presence. I hope that you have felt his nudge. Guys, when God nudges you, never, ever push back. Why would you push back against your creator? All he wants for you is your best. So if he has nudged you this morning, maybe you've never called him your Lord. Let's get it done. When he died for every single one of you, let's get it done. You know, there's an elder praying for you in the prayer room. Go talk with him. I'm going to hang around here after the service. I'm going to hang here at the next song. If you want to come talk, I'd love to chat with you about making Jesus the Lord of your life. Maybe you're just a drifter. A lot of Jesus followers are drifters. You never really establish a home. If you need to Give, make yourself a church home. How about, how about this place? If you love him and make him your Lord of your life, we'd love to have you as part of our family. Come talk to us. Let's get this thing done. And if you want to talk to us right here, right now, there's a card in front of you. It says a decision card on the top. If you put your name and any kind of contact information, we'll contact you and we'll talk about making Jesus the Lord of your life, making this church your home, or just about anything else you need to pray for. Just mark it down on the decision card. Let's pray together. Father, give us the wisdom, not just to listen to your word, but to try to live it out. Give us the wisdom not to base our relationship with you on what we have done, but on what you have done for us. Help us feel the power of that love. And help us to live it out in this place. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together.